All right. Hello and welcome to the Borderlines podcast, a podcast for the discussion of Canadian border and immigration related issues. I'm Steve Murens, joined remotely as always by Deanna Okanacha. We're uh, two immigration lawyers in Vancouver and we are joined today by Aris Daghagian, who used to be in Vancouver, uh, where he, I think, did you article with Peter Edelman? No, I articled at the Refugee Law Office, which is a division of Legal Aid Ontario here. It's a specialized office. It's pretty unique in the country. And then after that, I started as a first-year associate with Peter. And now you are back in Toronto as a senior associate with Green and Spiegel. Um, and you also, as we'll discuss, do some work with the Canadian Association of Refugee Lawyers. And the case that we are going to be discussing today, which I think is a very significant case uh, for immigration lawyers and stakeholders is Brown v. Canada, Citizenship and Immigration, a federal court of appeal decision that was released on August 7, 2020, and you acted there for one of the interveners, which was the Canadian Association of Refugee Lawyers um, and the Canadian Centre for International Justice also intervened in the case. This case touches on a lot of uh, issues regarding immigration detention. It's probably going to go to the Supreme Court. We're going to touch on a few of the issues uh, that were raised with a particular focus on how the case likely changes disclosure requirements in, well, it definitely changes disclosure requirements in the immigration detention context. And it might, uh, how that might expand to other areas of immigration. So I'm going to start by just reading one short paragraph from the decision. And then maybe RSE can provide an overview of how immigration detention works in Canada. Another podcast that we did on a similar topic, uh, was episode for those who want to go back and listen, episode 29. Immigration Detention and Habeas Corpus with Molly Joek and Erica Olmsted. Um, it touches on more on the Habeas Corpus and a little bit on immigration detention in Canada. And this episode is going to be much more focused on the federal immigration detention scheme, as well as the changes that the court articulated. So here's the paragraph paragraph three of the decision which provides a brief overview which says over the course of a year over 5,000 persons inadmissible to Canada for various reasons are held in immigration detention either in immigration holding centers operated by the Canada Border Services Agency or in provincial correctional institutions the vast majority of detentions are of short or intermittent duration, far less than 100 days, but for some detainees are held for much longer. And in the case of Mr. Brown, I think he was held for five years from September 2011 until he was deported in September 2016. So, Aris, I was just wondering if you could provide an overview of the detention, immigration detention review in Canada. And let's just start actually with how does somebody wind up in detention? Right. So someone can be detained in a number of ways. It can happen right at the border, at the port of entry. It can happen inland in Canada. Um, and the, the criteria is essentially 
that the individual must be both reasonable grounds to believe they're inadmissible to Canada and that they are um, a danger to the public, unlikely to appear as in a flight risk. Uh, their identity is in question. Um, those are the really, really the three main grounds. There are other grounds as well, such as an ongoing investigation or whatnot. But essentially, the the key criteria is that they have to be. There's a reason to believe they're inadmissible, that they um, should be revoked their status in Canada, their admissibility in Canada should be revoked. But also, not just that, that they are if they are allowed to remain free at liberty while that determination is made as to whether or not they should be removed and then eventually removed, that during that time there would be a danger to the public or a flight risk who would not show up for their removal, or just that we don't know their identity and so we don't know um, how to find them or whether or not they're a danger. So those are the criteria. Um, whether or not a warrant is required depends on whether it's a permanent resident or foreign national. Um, for permanent residents, a warrant is almost always required, except for at the port of entry, actually. Um, for foreign nationals, um, warrant not necessarily required in all circumstances. And so that is how someone finds themselves being arrested and detained. But um, the actual decision on whether or not they remain detained is made. Um, so the arrest is effectuated by the Canada Border Services Agency. Um, but the actual decision on whether or not they remain detained is made by the Immigration Division, which is, of course, um, an administrative tribunal, one of the four divisions of the IRB. And so how often will somebody who's in detention have their detention reviewed by the Immigration Division? So what happens is that almost immediately after an individual is arrested and CBSA decides, yes, we want to detain them long term, it's not just a catch and release, but they actually want to detain them long term. They have to notify the immigration division. And the first hearing, um, you can think of it as a, they're called detention reviews, but I often tell my students, I teach for the UBC uh, program, think of it as a bail hearing in the immigration context. It's called a detention review, but it essentially serves, then uh, it's most analogous to a bail hearing. And that first hearing happens 48 hours, or at least it's supposed to happen 48 hours after the detention, the arrest takes place, um, or as soon as possible. And as soon as possible means if someone's detained on Wednesday after five and 48 hours after that is Friday at five o'clock. Well, there are no hearings happening Friday at five o'clock. So their hearing gets pushed back to Monday morning. So in practice, not necessarily 48 hours after uh, detention, but within 48 business hours, at least, of their detention, they have their first hearing. After that, if they're ordered detained, they get another review seven days later. After that, again, if they're ordered detained at the seven-day review, they have another detention review um, at the 30-day mark, and then every 30 days thereafter on a continual basis. And at the hearing, if the immigration division determines... Uh, that somebody is inadmissible and let's say a danger to the public or unlikely to appear, is detention automatic or are there other factors that the uh, division will then look at? Right. So f first things first, they 
immigration regulations set out a list of factors depending on what the allegation is. If they're a danger, there are certain factors to look at. Well, have they been convicted of a serious crime that involves violence or a weapon or bodily harm or drugs, um, either in Canada or outside of Canada? Those are just some of the factors. Um, if it's flight risk, there are other factors, such as have they failed to appear for other proceedings, whether criminal or immigration related in the past? Are they a fugitive from justice in their home country or at least reasonable grounds to believe that they are? Um, so there's a list of factors in the regulations for each individual ground. The member will go through those, um, the member being the decision maker, will go through those factors. And if they find, yes, there is um, a ground of detention that doesn't end the inquiry, as you said. We have to move on to another list of factors, and that list of factors under 248 of the regulations um, balances the reason for detention against other conditions such as, or considerations such as the foreseeable length of detention, how long detention has been so far, and how long it is likely to continue. So one um, important criteria there could be, well, does the individual have an appeal right? Um, and if they have an appeal right, well, that appeal hearing may not be scheduled for another year or two years if you're here in Toronto. So the foreseeable length of detention will be quite lengthy. Um, other factors, um, any unexplained delay by either the individual and in not cooperating um, or by the minister and not taking the steps necessary um, to expedite the process as much as possible. Um, best interest of any children involved, right? If they're a parent, um, how will their child's life be affected by their ongoing detention? And then finally, alternatives to detention. That's, that's essentially um, almost what, you know, once a ground for detention has been established, it almost always comes down to alternatives to detention. And what would be some of those alternatives? Yeah, so alternatives can include often a bonds person willing to pay a bond. Um, and the number can vary. Um, it can vary on the type of case. And one distinction between in the immigration context and the criminal context that's often a surprise for clients is that, you know, in, in movies you always see the judge will say, you know, bail is set at, you know, $50,000, etc. So in, in the immigration context, the member doesn't set a bail amount. Um, essentially, the individual proposes as part of their release plan, a certain amount of bond that their bonds person is able to post for them um, relative to the bonds person's financial capabilities. Um, the member will then determine whether that is a reasonable amount or not in the circumstances that can either be a cash bond that is actual cash that is paid or a performance bond uh, tied to an asset leveraged against an asset that they own, such as their home. So that is the most common form of alternative to detention. There's also in recent years, um, there's been a move towards uh, more modern technologies such as electronic ankle monitoring. Um, reporting conditions are almost always imposed, so the individual will have to report weekly or bi-weekly to the CBSA. They'll have to notify if their address has changed. 
Um, they may have to live with their bonds person. The bonds person will promise to keep an eye on them. Um, so these are all different types of alternatives to detention that can be considered. There are certain government agencies also, such as the Toronto Bail Program here in Toronto, that um, acts as an institutional type of bonds person. If they accept the individual in their program, what they're saying is we'll look after them and we'll try to make sure that they are where they say they are and they're complying with all of their conditions. Yeah. And what would be the consequence if somebody were to receive um, permission to post a bond and then defaulted, uh, didn't show up for removal or for their reporting? Well, the, the first thing would be that they would their bonds person would lose their bond amount. Um, so that's how we always describe it to our clients. It's not that you're paying this amount to get your client free. You're not, you're not paying for their release. What you are is you're leveraging a certain amount of money against your promise to have them appear for removal and for their hearings. And so if they comply, you'll be reimbursed that amount. And if not, they'll lose that amount. Um, and the other consequence, of course, is that, you know, they can either be found inadmissible in absentia if they simply don't show up for their hearing and eventually a warrant will be put out for their arrest again and it's not likely they're going to be released the next time they're detained. Yeah. And so let's talk about some of the practical challenges um, you as a lawyer or the client themselves face in building a case to show why they should be released. So I'm sure, you know, I've been through it, you've been through it probably a lot more than me which is um, you just get a call either from someone's friend that their buddy was just arrested by immigration or maybe from the detainee themselves calling from when they're in detention with or without a translator. And if you could just take it from there, how you as lawyer are then able to step in and build the, build the case for them. Right. So the, the first difficulty is often um, even the client themselves don't have access to all of their immigration records, right? They may be able to provide you or paint you um, verbally a picture of, you know, their immigration history thus far and why they've landed in detention, but without access to the right files and paperwork, it's hard to take clients at their word, and they're, of course, not always familiar with all the technicalities and nuances um, that are needed to understand, or they may be reluctant to share some of the information um, that has led them to detention. So, you know, charges in their home country that they, they don't mention um, that you might not know about until you get to the hearing. So the first, you know, I, experience teaches us that the first thing we really want to do is to try to get disclosure from CBSA directly. Um, that's your best source of understanding the case against the client and all the adverse information that you're going to need to address at the detention review. Simultaneously, um, trying to put together a release plan, those alternatives to detention um, that we spoke about, finding a suitable bonds person, someone who they themselves have never had any immigration issues or criminal issues. They're an upstanding citizen, hopefully, or at least permanent resident who's been here for a long time. Um, they have a stable job of their own and assets that they can 
use um, for for posting a bond, um, and that they bonds person is able to speak um, to the individual's uh, release and also the reasons for their detention. Um, you know, a lot of work is done working with the bonds person in order to make sure they're able to answer some tricky questions that are often asked. So, you know, what's an example? Well, the minister or the member might ask, well, do you think you're going to be able to positively influence um, the, the individual, the detainee, in order to make sure that they show up for their hearings and their potential eventual removal? Um, and the person might say, well, yes, we're very close. You know, we, we live together or, um, you know, we're close family members. But the follow up question to that then is, well, if you're so close, then why did you allow them? You know, were you aware that they were in violation of immigration or criminal laws um, before their detention? Right. Why were you not able to act as a positive influence before this? Right. And it's a catch 22, because if they say, well, we weren't really that close before this, um, then, well, you're not really in a position to be a very good bonds person if you don't know the individual that well. So those are the type of tricky questions that um, you want to address and think of before um, picking a bonds person and before presenting your release plan to the immigration division. Um and then, I mean, the difficulty is also you have a lot of access maybe to the bonds person, but not the client themselves, right? They are, yeah. uh, the public are often shocked to learn that immigration detainees, for the most part, in most parts of the country, are kept in correctional facilities alongside regular members of the general uh, criminal population. Um, now, maybe they have a separate section of the correctional facility, but really, they, they're interspersed with the regular population and these correctional facilities aren't very close by usually it takes a lot of time and effort there's only certain visitation hours um, to go out and, and, and meet the clients and again their first detention review might be 48 hours from when they were detained and who knows when they were able to contact you um, so it makes the whole process fairly difficult now in Toronto we do have a dedicated immigration holding center um, and it's, it's better because it's one, um, only for immigration detainees, um, families can be kept together, although that's also a negative, right? Keeping children in detention, but at least families aren't separated. Um, and so, um, one, one aspect of the Brown decision that we'll talk about and one thing that many a Carl and other organizations have been pushing for is the conditions of detention and the fact that we need um, conditions and facilities that are more responsive to the fact that these individuals are not being held in detention. They're being held in detention for administrative, you know, immigration related reasons. Um, most of them haven't committed a crime or even if they have committed a crime, they've already served their time for that offense. And let's uh, go back to that, like, as one of the difficulties, um, since you touched on it, the CBSA disclosure. Yeah. So it's always surprised me how, as the lawyer, you could be walking in 
and literally sometimes right before the hearing, get the material that the government plans on relying on yeah. to keep your client in detention. And that's actually acknowledged in paragraph 141 of uh, this decision where uh, a hearings officer with CVSA admits that although disclosure should be provided in advance, there are times where it is not provided in advance. Have you had that experience as well where you're going yeah. to a hearing? Just blindsided. Yeah, and it, it's frankly worse in. Sorry. Oh, it's, it's worse in Toronto. Yeah, I was going to say it's 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 frankly much worse in Toronto than it is in Vancouver. Um, it's it, part of that is just a um, a result of the fact that VAR is smaller in Vancouver. There are less detention cases. There are less CBSA officers, so there's a more collegial relationship. There's usually a point person in Vancouver who you can email to ask for disclosure, even if you haven't been able to get a, it's called a use of rep, which is a, you know, an administrative form, you know, just for the audience, of course, you know, um, even if you haven't been able to get that signed, that's not a deal breaker necessarily. Um, Toronto, it's a lot more rigid and a lot less, uh, it's a lot more difficult to get in a hold of someone really even, especially before the 48 hour review um, to get even a hold of the case officer assigned to the file to be able to ask for disclosure. Even if you do, um, they're probably going to ask for, you know, a signed form from the client and how are you getting a signed form from the client um, who's, you know, in a correctional facility that you're not able to visit. Um, you can maybe try to fax it into them and get it faxed back to you, but that um, presumes that the correctional facility will help facilitate that. Um, so it's a little bit better in Vancouver. Um, it's worse in Toronto. I can't speak to other jurisdictions, but um, I assume it's somewhere in that range. Um, Montreal probably being closer to Toronto. And so one thing the Brown decision doesn't, address directly is we need better timelines, right? So what, you know, one issue is what is included in disclosure, but the other issue is, you know, a, a more formalized process for uh, providing disclosure to counsel sufficiently in advance so as to be able to prepare for these hearings. And that, that obligation is on the minister, but unfortunately it's not in the immigration division rules. And frankly, it's not in the Brown decision either, even though the Brown decision as a whole is fairly good on the disclosure issue. Yeah. And then the contents of what is disclosed. Um, you know, I remember first year criminal law where you read the Supreme Court of Canada and R.V. Stinchcomb. And the issue there was whether the police have to, or the prosecutors, have to disclose to defense both... Um, exculpatory evidence and evidence that will be used to convict. And I think in Stinchcomb, it was uh, the Crown had wanted to withhold certain interviews that suggested that the person was innocent. And the Supreme Court said, no, everything has to be disclosed. I mean, it's almost a rhetorical question, but is that, at least until this decision, has that been the case in immigration, where the Canada Border Services Agency has to disclose both positive and negative uh, aspects of their case to the immigrant or the detainee. So, so no, the standard until now has been in the immigration, it's the, in the immigration division rules itself, 
that if a party wants to use a document at the hearing, they have to provide a copy to the other party and the division um, as soon as possible um, in case of the 48 hour and then at least five days before the hearing in the case of the other hearings. But of course, what the party wants to rely on when that party is the state isn't, isn't good enough. We also want the information in their possession and the documents in their possession that is exculpatory or to the advantage of the detainee. And it's funny you mentioned Stinchcomb because um, this is one of the, uh, this is the uh, issue that we really, this is an onus, which we can talk about later, or the issues that we focused on on behalf of the interveners. And this is actually the issue I argued um, at the FCA. And we <laughs> purposefully did not cite to Stinchcomb or want to rely on Stinchcomb because the instinctual reaction we thought we'd get from the court of appeal um would be well that's the, that's the criminal context and and it just a, just a um reticence um an instinctual reticence to ever apply criminal law principles and and, and values and to the immigration context and you see that when you see their discussion of jordan later on or earlier on in the decision mm. um so we we, we had shied away from stinchcomb we we, we we elucidated the principles from Stinchcomb. We talked about the international law um, jurisprudence on disclosure in the immigration detention context, but we shied away from Stinchcomb. But what happened at the hearing was they actually jumped on it and um, said, so essentially what you're asking for is a Stinchcomb level of um, disclosure obligations. And it's, so at that point, you know, the only answer is yes, in essence, we are, but for the reasons, you know, not necessarily for the reasons described in Stinchcomb, but for the reasons we've, we've talked about in the immigration context. And they put that to the uh, DOJ. They said, well, why shouldn't immigration detainees be entitled to the same procedural protections with respect to disclosure as um, was set out in Stinchcomb? And DOJ really didn't have a good answer. I think the court was surprised the extent that we were surprised, but the court was even surprised as to the extent to which DOJ didn't have a good answer for why this shouldn't be the standard, other than the fact that that's not what the rules say. And it's sort of just been accepted that that's not required for so long. They didn't have an answer as to why immigration detainees don't deserve a Stinchcomb level of uh, disclosure. If you were to try to play devil's advocate, because I struggle to come up with a good reason for why when we are debating whether when the system is trying to decide whether to keep someone in jail or immigration detention, the government should not have to also provide the exculpatory evidence. And I think in Mr. Brown's case, they were trying to show whether he could be removed to Jamaica and whether the Jamaican government would take him and CBSA had argued that they only had to show correspondence which suggested yes, and that they didn't have to disclose the correspondence which suggested no. What is, if you had to play devil's advocate, the strongest counter-argument to why a detainee shouldn't be given all the exculpatory evidence? I'm trying to phrase it in a way that's somewhat neutral, <laughs> but <laughs> again, I'm struggling. Yeah. But, like, what is the argument um, for why they shouldn't get the evidence that helps? Yeah, so I can, I mean, I really can't 
like you, I, I can't really come up with, you know, there's, there's other aspects of the decision that I could come up with the counter arguments for the other side better than this one. I can talk about what the court had said in Allen, which was a federal court decision following the Brown trial division decision that cites to the, um, the trial division's decision in Brown before the current federal court of appeal ruling. And what happened in Allen is that the applicant had asked for um, disclosure. He'd been denied all of the relevant disclosure with respect to the removal arrangements. And um, based on that and based on guidance that had been provided in Brown that a judicial review on an interim basis can be requested on an expedited interim basis to get the disclosure that you're missing, he brought the, the case in Allen to the federal court. And what the court said was um, that essentially um, Allen was seeking to examine whether reasonable efforts were being made, but the applicant didn't know if there was anything in the correspondence that would assist his case against continued detention. He hoped to find something that would allow him to argue that the reason for delay um, was not his own lack of cooperation, but ra rather a lack of diligence on the part of the minister. And therefore, the court found it was a fishing expedition, right? So maybe the argument is that unless there is a reason to believe, to doubt that the minister is in fact making all reasonable efforts, and if there's some evidence to the effect that the minister has, has put forward to the effect that they are making reasonable efforts, then there is no entitlement to receive all of their, um, and, and there are confidentiality concerns as well, and of course the decision doesn't overrule those, um, you know, matters of privilege between foreign governments and whatnot. Um, but there is no obligation, shouldn't be an obligation on the minister to disclose more unless there's a reason to doubt that they are um, doing what they say they are, which is making every reasonable effort to effectuate removal as, as quickly as possible. That fishing expeditions shouldn't be allowed. And also that individuals shouldn't be um, permitted to um, bury their own lack of cooperation or muddy the waters with respect to their own lack of cooperations by trying to pass the buck to the minister. Um, again, that's a weak argument, um, but it is the argument that the court found convincing or, or found to be the case in the Allen case. And um, the Federal Court of Appeal did speak to the Allen case, and essentially um, it said that lack of cooperation by the individual or whatever actions the individual has or hasn't taken doesn't change the disclosure obligations. It may, it may affect the overall calculus of whether or not they should be released, but disclosure obligations are always there and they always include all relevant, anything that could be relevant to the detainee's case. And relevant, of course, includes what steps have been taken, all the evidence with respect to what steps have been taken to effectuate the removal. And I, I think that what you're saying, too, I feel that the Court of Appeal did address this in a meaningful way at paragraph 44 of the decision, where they say essentially that in order for a meaningful decision to be made, the, the board needs to be in possession of all of the information with respect to whether or not 
uh, removal can be affected. And so that the, 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 the disclosure obligation should be such that any information about whether or not removal is going to be possible should be before the board member. And of course, that's not information that the detainee is going to have any access to. So that seems to me to speak to a situation where procedural fairness would need to mandate um, stronger requirements on on uh, the minister because otherwise that information just can't end up before the board. So it's a real public interest here to make sure that the common law does make that disclosure requirement more robust to enable procedural fairness to be affected. Right. Exactly. How um, how do we know whether or not removal is possible, even using the standard from the Court of Appeal? Um, how do we know whether removal is possible if we don't have access to all, if we're not privy to the information, the underlying information with respect to what efforts have been made, what the hurdles are, um, what is there left to be done? Exactly. And I mean, you did a lot of arguing about this notion of a reverse onus, but uh, and I don't know that the court necessarily, like they didn't grab onto that pit, bit about reverse onus. They kind of mm-hmm. talked around it. But essentially, if they don't put a very significant burden on the minister to make a very robust disclosure, then it would ultimately end up being like a reverse onus because it would then fall to a detainee to establish whether or not their government was going to release that travel document that would allow for removal, of course. And that, like on the on the facts of this case, uh, how was he going to prove that Jamaica was never going to issue the passport or was going to take them seven years to to issue the five years to issue the passport that would allow for his removal and he had to sit in jail in the meantime? You know, it's it's an it would end up in effect to be like a shifting of the onus, even though it's not necessarily in law. Right. And that's that is what we argued as well, that um, in a lot of these cases, it ends up whether or not that's how the law is is written, being a reverse onus because of, of exactly what you were speaking about, Deanna, is um, the the fact that once the minister has, you know, through however many first, you know, the first however many detention reviews proven that one, there are grounds for detention to that the um, removal might be possible, they really have to, they just continue to rely on the fact that, you know, we're making efforts, we're making efforts, and how is an individual supposed to disprove that um, at each subsequent detention review, right? There's no new information the individual has in their possession, or we as counsel have in our possession. All of that information is held by the minister, and so there's nothing left to argue at subsequent detention reviews unless we have access to that ongoing um, evidence with respect to what's going on behind the scenes. I see. So you weren't actually even really, or the uh, the uh, appellant wasn't actually arguing that there was a legal reverse onus, but just that there was a de facto reverse onus. Well, no, we were arguing that there was a legal reverse onus, but that gets to the... Um, 
the Thanabella Singham decision, which was a 2004 um, Federal Court of Appeal decision, which used this, it's, 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 it's an unfortunate phrase, um, that at a subsequent detention review, um, the member, if they want to order release, when the prior members have ordered detention, they have to have clear and compelling reasons um, for doing so, to depart from the prior decision. Um, and it was a throwaway line, um, to be perfectly honest. Um, that wasn't the crux of the decision in Thetabella Singham. But what happened was that law, that the, that the division and um, the, the courts after that and the guidelines um, for detention all latched onto that phrase and turned it into a type of reverse onus that once an individual um, has been ordered detained at their you know first few detention reviews, there better be some clear and compelling reasons um, why the, the subsequent member needs to depart from that those prior decisions. And again, so then it goes back to well, how is an individual supposed to provide clear and compelling reasons? Um, that anything has changed sufficient enough for the new member to depart from the findings of all the prior members when they don't have access to the, any of the evidence um, with respect to what's happened in the interim or what's possible um, in the future with respect to removal. Um, and okay. so that so that 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 clear and compelling um, reasons to depart. Um, is, is, is incorrect on the law and because the onus is always supposed to be on the minister and it should never be read. Um, that was in. So what the Federal Court of Appeal now says in Brown is, well, that was never meant to be read to imply that the minister doesn't carry the burden at every single detention review um, to prove that detention is still justified. Um, but of course, that is how it was being applied. And Brown tries to do everything it can to sort of reverse neutralize neutralize Danabella Singham without saying we were wrong, of course, right? And I got um, it, yeah. With all due respect to the court, right? They they couldn't just bring themselves to say we were wrong or that line was a throwaway line that's been misapplied and um, it was obiter anyway. Um, but they've done, they, they 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 do everything to emphasize that the onus does always have the burden always remains on the minister at each detention review to prove right. their case um they take issue with the supreme court's decision in china that talked about the fact that thanabella singham leads to circuitous um reasoning or um uh, I, I forget the exact terminology um that I think they have used the opener for or there's a line where they right. try to say that a line in China is itself opener and can't be used uh, or shouldn't be used to overturn the previous federal court of appeal jurisprudence. There's a weird, like the case in Brown, and this might be in part if the SCC does take it up, why they do is there's a couple times where um, the federal court of appeal throws a bit of shade at China and at the whole notion of habeas corpus as an alternative. Yeah, totally. Yeah, so they take um, they take direct aim at the China decision yeah. for a number of reasons. Um, 
And one of them is that that on that issue of onus, where um, they, I'm just trying to look for the line, but essentially the the Supreme Court had um, said that that line is incorrect, and they say, well, you know, they're they're wrong on that. Um, and and so. Yeah, I mean, here's the paragraph 127 of the decision talking about how China, you know, the observations um, of the Supreme Court, um, that leads self-referential reasoning. That that uh, That's the line, not circuitous, self-referential reasoning, right? That e- each decision just relies on the decisions before it, right? That each, it's much easier for each member to say simply, well, for the same reasons that every other member before me has found, you know, the detention to be justified, I'm I'm finding it to be justified as well, and pass the buck to the next 30-day review. Um, that's what China had said, and the court says, well, you know, that's obiter. Henry, the Supreme Court case, and Henry says we don't have to. The ratio is not binding on us, right? Um, and this is why the court got it wrong. Um, yeah, but they also say that we, but that China also didn't do kind of a back to first principles review right. of the detention review process, and therefore, in that respect, we're not in conflict with that decision. Right, and I mean the response to that is, of course, they they don't need to do a, they you know they they the Supreme Court knew enough, right, in, in reviewing mm. the entire record in China, they understood enough about the detention review process to quite accurately describe this self-referential reasoning that occurs the federal court of appeals just didn't um want to accept that and also i mean even even at the hearing what we witnessed and i mean they told us and this is nothing controversial in we there was um the bird decision at the sec in the criminal context and i forget why we even um wanted to go there it had just come out when we were about to argue the case but as soon as i think the word bird came out of either my mouth or maureen's mouth they said you know don't even talk to us about bird we don't want to hear it we don't know what the supreme court was thinking so they they it seems like there's there's an ever-growing at least between some justices of the fca and the sec an ever-growing tension so what are your thoughts on this, that maybe in this decision, the disclosure stuff is ratio and strictly binding, and the statements that there's no maximum timeline on when a, someone has to be released, that's just commentary, and there is, in fact, a uh, maximum time someone ha- can be in detention before they're released. If we're going to try mean? to piece Oh, it's just a, it, it's a lame just a lame joke of trying to figure out what's actually the binding part of the decision. Oh, right. That's just commentary. Um, and it's also a bit of a segue to that issue of the Jordan right. issue. But that right. is like... If I, if I may, though, like I feel like it's it's important to kind of pull up a little bit because it strikes me that this, this conflict between the FCA and the SEC, um, it's really interesting because... Um, like, I want to go from a philosophical perspective as to what is this evil that um, advocates are going after with all of this test case litigation? Why do these 
why do these things keep coming up and why are they being argued all the way up to the highest levels of court? And I think we've mentioned it in previous episodes, but I think it's good to kind of talk about, you know, head on, what are the persistent issues in detention review proceedings that is causing, you know, Carl and other uh, like-minded organizations to champion these issues and, um, and bring them up to the Supreme Court of Canada? Yeah, I think so high level, very high level. Um, I think what it comes down to is the line of reasoning um, that the FCA adopts for the most part in this case that says the law and the system are fundamentally sound and constitutional the way they are set up and any problems um, with the process or simply maladministration that can be addressed by re-emphasizing the foundational principles of how the system is supposed to work um, in contrast to um, organizations whose members, like Carl, whose membership are on the ground um, on a daily basis, where we see that as um, in, a, in a practical way, the, the system doesn't operate the way that it's supposed to work. It, 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 it isn't being applied um, in, in a manner that's um, constitutionally sound, and so the the FCA's response to that is, well, on an individual basis, you can, if if there's an individual case where you believe that it's being a, the scheme is being applied in an unconstitutional way, bring that up on judicial review. But of course, it's not, you know, it's not no one case. I mean, you have to really um, find the best cases. You know, Brown was was a good example where you can make those constitutional arguments but at a at a minor level every single day the um the act isn't really being um and the rules and the regs aren't being applied um the way that they should be right on the ground um does the member sort of defer to the minister's um statement to the effect that yes we're doing everything we can to effectuate removal um, does the member, you know, after five or six detention reviews, implicitly put the reverse onus on the individual to prove why anything has changed and why they should be ordered released? And um, unfortunately, no amount of direction or no amount of commentary on how the system should work seems to change that on the ground just because of how these things tend to play out. And I think you were mentioning before we went on um before we started recording, that you say the same dynamics in a criminal context and fail hearing decisions in, um, in detention decisions and even on uh, pretrial delay decisions, which was the, the Jordan case. Yeah, and that's exactly what we discussed in our last podcast when we were talking about the Zora decision, where it's nice for the Supreme Court of Canada to say, hey, this is how the standard should be applied. But when practitioners across the country are saying that in actual fact, uh, it's the opposite, that this argument for a more robust uh, interpretation, uh, something that's a 
less loose uh, in terms of less discretionary uh, needs to be implemented because this basic guidance isn't trickling down to members at the front at the front line. Uh, I mean, the, the thing that I see is distinguished between like one of the key differences between what the FCA said uh, in Brown and what the Supreme Court of Canada said in China is that in China, there was an acknowledgement that what's actually happening in detention reviews is that with each subsequent detention review, a less and less stringent examination of the reasons for continued detention is being applied. The Supreme Court of Canada seemed to like give notice to the fact that actually that's what's happening in practice. And so presumably that's why... Right advocates went to habeas corpus because they wanted out of the detention review scheme. And that's what Molly and Erica said to us in that uh, other episode. They were looking for a way to get a different decision maker, not an immigration division member, to look at this and say, is there truly sufficient grounds to detain? And the Supreme Court of Canada said, no, there wasn't. What the FCA seems to be saying here is, well, be that as it may, this doesn't apply here because those people are just doing it wrong. And that's wonderful. That's nice. But it doesn't take away from the fact that it's still what's being done again and again. And it seems to me that what your group is trying to say is um, that it's still putting too much onus on the detainees to try and like, you know, bring judicial review applications that cost like tens of thousands of dollars when you're having to JR and then appeal and all of this sort of thing. Like it's, it's too much that there still is a, an unfair onus to challenge wrong decisions when the wrong decision is the, the rule rather than the exception. Does that sound right? Like, right. No, that, that, that's absolutely right. Yeah. That, that is, um, right. And, um, hopefully, um, at least when it comes to the onus issue, and disclosure that this decision will be helpful and we will see a change in, in how um, these concepts are applied in practice. And if not, I think, you know, yet again, we have to go back to court and say, listen, you, you, you know, this is what the Court of Appeals said in Brown, but listen, this is what's actually happening. Read the transcripts. This is what's actually happening by your sixth or seventh detention review. There is still a de facto reverse onus on the individual to prove why they should be released now when they haven't been released the six prior times they've had a detention review. So hopefully that's not the case, but I think that may end up being what happens um, in in the future. How do you think that disclosure will work in practice? Will it just be the minister having to sign off that there's no other evidence that they've relied on? Will they have to provide all of GCMS uh, before every detention review? Global case management system notes for... uh, those who aren't familiar with the acronym. Um, I think they're going to have to provide both their notes and any other uh, documents they have. I mean, some of this is emails between their office and foreign, their counterparts in foreign jurisdictions. Um, some of this are official requests. Some of this are background search results. Um it's not always even um, just the, the removal issue that they keep hidden, right? Sometimes they say, well, we're investigating whether or not the individual may have 
you know, further details as to a reasonable suspicion that they may have committed a crime abroad. But, you know, three months later, they're still investigating, well, what's been going on, right? We need that evidence. We need that information beyond your word as to the fact that you're pursuing these checks. Um, Well, even one that's always surprised me, like with an allegation that someone lied in a previous application, um, they don't have to provide at the admissibility hearing stage the full copy of the previous application. They can just provide the one page that might be inconsistent with a current application, even if somewhere in the previous application, it may or may not be that they actually said the truth. And there was just a, a previous application itself, maybe address the inconsistency somewhere. Do you see this disclosure requirement extending to say like, okay, in a misrepresentation case involving, say, a previous application, the entirety of both applications have to be provided or the entirety of a uh, the immigration file has to be provided. Because I've struggled in representing people where there's a misrepresentation finding and someone doesn't have a copy of their previous application and it takes months of delays to submit a freedom of information request or access to information request to the government um, when CBSA and in theory could just the... provide it. But also the access to information, there are specific exemptions for providing things where there's an active investigation, too. So even that doesn't necessarily get the document that you're looking for. Yeah. How far do you see this going into other beyond detention? Right. Well, especially in in that example that you gave where there's case law that says if the correct information is otherwise included elsewhere in the application, that is a defense to misrepresentation because it clearly shows that the officer was still able to, um, had access to the information and was able to pursue all avenues of inquiry. Um, the, the provision of the entire record is essential. And so I think this decision does help that. I mean, there are aspects of the disclosure rationale that are specific to the detention context insofar as, well, if there needs to be a possibility of removal, we need to see the evidence supporting or um, disproving the possibility of removal. But there are other aspects of the decision or the rationale that is a little bit broader, right? It's just based on uh, common law principles of of procedural fairness that an individual has the right um, to have access to... um, to all exculpatory information the same as they are um, in a criminal proceeding. So um, I think that it will be extended. ID Rule 26, the one that they take aim at, the one that says, you know, you only have to provide what you intend to rely upon, that's the rule that applies to all admissibility hearings and detention reviews. So mm-hmm. if, if that rule has to be rewritten, which it will now have to be rewritten, um, I think that then that rule will apply to admissibility hearings going forward as well. But that's kind of a shout out to any litigators that uh, you need to be mindful that if that if you're getting only adverse information in the meantime, uh, you need to be specifically asking and trying to figure out whether or not you actually have a full disclosure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So very interesting. Yeah. And I don't think they, or what do they explicitly strike down section 26 or just say that it has to be I mean, they just say reread it in a way that's not 
what it says. No, they just, I mean, they didn't even say it has to be reread. They just say it doesn't go far enough, and they explain why it doesn't go far enough. And so, um, I mean, I assume they're going to rewrite it. Uh, at the very least, the guidelines, I mean, the guidelines have already been uh. adjusted, but at the very least, the guidelines will now reflect Brown, and Brown is controlling. But, I mean, eventually, they're going to have to rewrite Rule 26. Um, yeah. 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 Um, and we're coming up on an hour, and we haven't yet even addressed <laughs> what the Federal Court of Appeal pleaded about when they announced that this case has been decided which is whether there should be a, well, I mean, you can say, because I think you mentioned maybe before we started recording that you're not, you didn't think the decision accurately reflected what was being argued. And to me, reading the decision, what was being argued was that there should be a hard cap on how long someone can be in detention. Was that not what was argued or was that what was? Yeah, no, that, that's, that's, that's the, that's the lead, um, that's the lead issue was, um, should there be a hard cap on immigration detention? Uh, the limit after which, um, detention is presumptively unconstitutional or presumptively indefinite. Um, so, um, the, the background to that is, is that most jurisdictions do have that type of limit. Um, so for example, in the EU, it's um, six to 18 months, depending on a number of factors. Um, in Australia, it's four months with the possibility of up to six and no more than 10 months in any 18 month period, um, et cetera, et cetera. So a lot of jurisdiction and this is and the requirement for a presumptive limit or a hard cap or hard limit um, is um in the ICCPR, the National Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. Um, it's in um, other international instruments. Um, the Working Group on Arbitrary Detention, the UN Working Group, has talked about this. Um, and the, the courts really, they vacillate on how much weight they give international law. It's sort of, they'll cite the international law when they agree with it, like in the, in the disclosure context. Um, but then, you know, if they don't agree with what international law says and the, you know, the, with respect to the limits, then, you know, international law is not binding on them. And Which is what um, they said here. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. But you'll see in the disclosure context, they have no problem citing to the international <laughs> interest that supports them. Um, so the, the part, though, that um, I think was lost or is maybe um, the nuance that I think the public might not be aware of um, is that. It was a presumptive limit, one, not a hard cap. So once you reach the presumptive limit, the minister is free to say, well, here are the reasons why this case is exceptional and why the individual should still re remain detained despite the fact that presumptive limit has been reached. And those reasons can include the fact that the person, um, you know, is accused of very serious, you know, terroristic activities, as it was the case in Charkawi, or that they've just been uncooperative with their removal or, or, or whatever else. Um, so it's a presumptive limit, not a hard cap. The other reason, and so um, the court says we, so we analogize or the appellants analogize to Jordan, and that was the pretrial 
Have you talked about Jordan in other podcasts? No, we didn't talk that. No. We did a little bit in the bail conditions one. Yeah. Because that was uh, part of the Zora decision. They made reference to uh, to Jordan, I believe. Yeah. Okay. We haven't done an in-depth... Uh, no, you're right. Yeah, I mean, and I won't do that either, but essentially Jordan was the pretrial delay um, decision that is in the criminal context that essentially said there should be a cap of an actual numerical objective standard that's placed on how long a delay can last before it's unreasonable in the criminal trial delay context. Um, and so the court, the federal court of appeals response, and it's really just a couple paragraphs, um, is, well, this isn't the criminal context. And in the criminal context, the whole apparatus is within the control of the federal government or the provincial government. Um, uh, and so the delay is really attributable to the government alone. But in the immigration context, the delay may be attributable to um, a foreign government. And uh, the minister has done everything they can. And so it is um, the same principles and rationale are not applicable. And what I think they misunderstood um, is that the argument we were making is was simpler and more nuanced than that. It was that a presumptive limit, and this goes a little bit back to that um, discussion we were having with respect to at your eighth detention review, right at your 20th detention review, you know, Mr. Brown was in jail for up to five years, close to five years. How do you at a certain point prove that now, you know, the, the next 30 days is what all of a sudden made my detention um, unreasonable or indefinite, um, or there is no longer a reasonable possibility of removal when there has been at every subsequent detention review up until then. It's an institutional type of inertia that happens. Um, a complacency after a certain amount of time with the detention continuing um, that um, requires an inflection point, right? A point at which a member can say, okay, now that we've hit this number, and it does, it almost doesn't even matter what the number, I mean, it does matter for people's liberty, but it, the, the number itself, you might say, well, how do we pick the number? It doesn't really matter so much as, you know, we can argue over six months, 12 months, 18 months, but um, it's a point at which the member can say, OK, now, you know, we've reached a point where, um, you know, maybe up until now, every detention, every 30 days hasn't been unreasonable in that 30 day period. But you know, we have crossed the threshold where we need to take stock of everything that's happened and really decide whether or not um, going forward, detention can still be justified. It's the. Um, the, the frog, I don't know if this analogy will make any sense, but the, the frog in the boiling water um, metaphor where what's happening now is, you know, the member at the first detention review says detention is reasonable and so on and so on. And the, the temperature is slowly being turned up. And then you get to a case like Mr. Brown, who all of a sudden has spent five years in detention. Um, and at no point in time did someone, you know, was there an inflection point to say, Okay, now it's, you know, objectively, it may have been too long. We need to look look back on everything that's happened and um, 
instead the member restrict themselves to only what's happened in the last 30 days and then pass the buck to the next member to decide the next 30 days going forward. Um, and it's difficult to reverse that inertia unless there is a, um, again, an objective standard that's set, which is the same thing in the criminal context with the pretrial delay. It wasn't that the delay was the fault of the any one particular um, it, it wasn't that it was the government's fault. It was that it's hard for a judge at any specific point in time when the when the case keeps getting pushed back incrementally to say, okay, now it's been too long. And the more delay is accepted, the more that becomes the norm. And so the court in Jordan reset the standards by setting a objective benchmark and that's what how, we were asking for in these how days. often is it that it's the same member like so that where you might have this scenario where you got a member at month 20 going hey, i'll just keep them in and month 21 another member can deal with it well i mean usually it'll be another especially in toronto um there are dozens of members um and so usually you're going to be getting a different member now eventually at a certain point you're going to start reusing members just luck of the draw um but um in smaller yeah, centers yeah i'm sure it's much more it's it happens much faster right and so no and so part of it is no one member has ownership of the case so you're not going to be the member who comes in when you know 19 members before you have ordered detention and on the 20th detention review all of a sudden say well the other 19 members were wrong and i'm going to order release unless something critical has happened and usually nothing critical has happened. And so again, that's why an objective benchmark makes sense because it allows that member the leeway to say, okay, we've hit the presumptive limit, but you know, feel free to convince me why we should keep detention ongoing. Right. Another thing that you, I mean, the story with the frog and the, in the water, I actually find helpful, but it also it sort of makes me think of a situation where, you know, you're waiting for the bus. Mm -hmm. uh, and after you've been waiting for 45 minutes, it feels you're less inclined to walk away at that stage because right. having waited all this amount of time, surely it's got to be coming along now. Right. And so in a situation with Mr. Brown, like Mr. Brown, where you're waiting for the foreign government to issue a passport, in some ways for a decision maker adjudicating that 20th detention review, uh, in some ways, you wonder whether or not the length of the detention seems to, at some point, justify continued detention. Right. Because right. we must be almost there. I mean, right. honestly, they must be about to issue it now. So, <laughs> right. so they're just waiting for the bus. Or, or if this case justified this length of wait, then surely it justifies another 30 days. How right. can you say it? Right. How can yeah. I say it justifies three and a half years of delay, but not another 30 days? It's that classic, well, if four is okay, what about five? Well, five, right. what about seven? Well, that's and right. then all of a sudden, at 100. Right. So and having that, that sort of hard limit is like, right. well, maybe it will happen the next one that you'll have it, but at, at least you've had to, you sort of had an automatic hit the reset button unless right. something else comes into play. Right. And again, it's presumptive. You know, if the minister has reasons why the case... Um, should continue longer and the, the individual should be held in detention longer. They can make that case. And so I think when you put it in, when you frame it that way, um, it's a much more reasonable 
request. Um, and I'm not sure that the FCA fully grappled with with everything we just talked about um, by yeah. saying, well, the immigration context is different than the criminal context, but without addressing what we just talked about. Nor perhaps the alternatives to detention that you had discussed, uh, like what is the risk? Had Mr. Brown been released after that presumptive cap after 12 months, but with an ankle bracelet, mm-hmm. he would have had an additional four years of his life on the outside that now he can't get back. I mean, what would be the risk, uh, you know, just in terms of, I mean, it's not balance of convenience, but you understand what I'm saying in terms of what are actually the risks and had he then violated, then, you know, he would have lost his chance of getting a further release in future in all likelihood. But at the very least, um, he would have had the opportunity to demonstrate that he deserved to be on the outside of a prison cell for the remaining four years of his unexecutable removal. Right, right. Absolutely. And I'm sure if you told any of those initial decision makers how long Mr. Brown was going to end up yeah. in detention, their sure. decision may have been much, much different. But the way the system is set up with it, it's almost a negative. I mean, it's it's good that the detention is regularly reviewed, but it's almost the frequency of the detention review is almost um, uh, voids their, the meaningfulness of, of the review. Right. Um, yeah. In that sense, because they think they're only making a decision for 30 days. So right, right. no skin off my back. Yeah. Right. Which is why habeas corpus is so great. I'm sure Erica and, and Molly spoke to that, which is you get to take it in front of a fresh decision maker who's never um, heard this case before. And they're making an overall decision, not just a decision for the next 30 days. I think the right. fresh decision maker concept is a useful one. We had in our uh, office... Um, an associate from Lawrence Waldman's office was working with us on a series of, uh, there'd been a series of detention reviews and they, a member had ordered release. The government had sought judicial review of the decision to release. It was all expedited. They lost. And so the person was supposed to be released, but then CBSA said, well, there's another 30 day detention review in two days. Anyways, we'll see if that one just orders that the person be detained. And had it been a new member, they very well may have said fresh eyes ordered detained. Luckily, in that case, ironically, it was the same member. And she was really annoyed at what had transpired and actually said, I think that she wouldn't leave the building until she saw that the detainee had also left the building. Um, so there's some like, that's why it's when you just have Every time a new person, I think there's a bit of a pass the buck, see what the right. next person. Right. On the other hand, if you keep getting the same eh member, then... Uh, then you're hoping for a new person, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, I don't have anything too much to add on Brown. There's a lot in it, obviously. If there's any, Are there any points you think we haven't raised that... Only, and I think this was in the outline we discussed, and again, I know we've, we've spoken a lot about this um, case, but they, they take issue with the Ontario Court of Appeal. Not only do they pick a fight with the SEC, but they also pick a fight with the ONCA decision with respect to the presumptive, uh, with the, sorry, the impossibility, the litmus test for constitutionality, whether it needs to be impossible to apply the scheme in a constitution, in an unconstitutional way or whether or not 
well, whether whether just allowing the discretion for an for an administrative decision maker to apply it in an unconstitutional way um, is is sufficient, which is the the route that the Ontario Court of Appeal took, which is essentially that if it allows the discretion for the application of this scheme in an unconstitutional way, then it is unconstitutional. It's a Section 12 um, or 7 violation, whereas the Federal Court of Appeal says, no, as long as the scheme is itself on its own is constitutional, if it allows for an individual to apply it unconstitutionally, um, that's a problem with that individual decision that you can then take up on that individual case, but it doesn't mean the scheme as a whole is unconstitutional. And so um, I only bring that up because that might be one of the things we hang our hat on or the appellants hang their hat on um, for leave at the SEC because mm. we have a cir circuit split, so to speak, between the FCA and the Ontario Court of Appeal. And so we can say clarity is needed on that issue. And that is one of those, you know, broad issues of national importance that goes beyond immigration detention and really has to do with how do we evaluate constitutionality of provisions so um it it no, the case really doesn't this case doesn't turn on it completely but it is one of those things that you might hear more of because um it's a hook by which to get ourselves at the sec before the sec i have to say that that part of the decision i was a little bit baffled on how first of all how how impossibility was deemed to be an easier standard to decipher to, uh, I can't remember what the alternative was, impossibility of removal versus uh, unreasonable. I can't remember what the... Oh, I think you're talking about the um, whether removal is possible versus whether removal is foreseeably... Foreseeably, yeah, that uh, part. Foreseeable. But um, also yeah. the part about that you were just um, referencing about... Uh, the constitutional the com that component of the constitutional challenge uh, where is an unconstitutional application possible my understanding was that that's kind of exactly what an overbreadth argument is in the constitutional context um, and so like in an when you're arguing that the statute is overbroad, isn't that precisely what you're arguing? Is that you could interpret that this and apply it where you're not violating the statute, but you're still coming to an unconstitutional result. Yeah. And so I didn't really understand yeah. how. Yeah, I'm certainly not a constitutional expert and I didn't argue that part of the case, but that's my understanding as well. So in the mandatory minimum context, they don't have to argue that the mandatory minimum is unconstitutional as applied to a vast majority of cases that fall under the mandatory minimum. They just have to find the one outlier hypothetical case yeah. that could fall under the mandatory minimum that would be unconstitutional and the scheme as a whole is unconstitutional and mandatory minimums aren't saved by the argument that, well, the prosecutor has the discretion exactly. not to apply the mandatory minimum in that case. That doesn't save the provision, but again, um, I think these are gonna, these, these are going to be arguments that are made um, in more depth at the SEC level if we get there. Yeah, and that's what I thought was decided in Apple and Appa as well on very similar yeah. circumstances too. So I was a little baffled by how they decided that that wasn't a valid way of challenging constitutionality. So it right. would be very interesting to hear what the Supreme Court of Canada has to say about uh, that 
approach to a constitutional challenge overall. Right. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Well, I think that is it for now. It's good to see you. Normally we'd see each other at a uh, CBA conference, but that's not happening for a while. We're all uh, on hold for the foreseeable future. Indeed. But, uh, yeah, no, this was, uh, that was, this was fun. Hopefully we'll Super informative. Thanks so much. Yeah, Hopefully definitely. that wasn't too much, but, uh, thanks so much. No, for that. That was, that was it was great. wonderful. Yeah. Right, thanks cool. so much. Bye. Bye. Okay. Bye. Bye.